I want to invite you today to listen with me to the Word of God. This passage I'm going to read comes from the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John, and it is situated at a moment when Jesus has just hours left with his disciples uh, before he is taken from them and begins the walk directly to the cross. And the disciples are, are feeling the, the press of the moment. They're feeling the tension, the anxiety of the moment. Jesus has been talking to them about his suffering that is to come. And in classic Jesus style, even though it's he who is going to be going through the toughest part of this journey, he's concerned about them. And so he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, but trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. I want you to hold on to that image that we have a God who's, who has such a heart for individuals that he prepares a room for them, that he wants them to come home uh, to him. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, said Jesus, and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's what he wants most for human beings, that we be close to his heart. You know the way to the place where I am going, says our Lord. And in classic fashion, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think I've told you before that Thomas is my favorite um, disciple. Uh, he's the one I, I guess I identify most with. You know, he's the skeptic. Uh, he's the one who has to, he's the show me, the show me disciple. Give me more information here, please. Can I touch you? Can I, can I feel this? Can I have this in my hand? I don't get it. Help me, Jesus, to grow in faith. Give me what I need. Thomas is also the one who, 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 who will ask the hard questions and confess where he's confused. And, and it's that part of Thomas's life with which I feel particular resonance uh, in this recent week of my life. Because I have mightily struggled to find the way through a very difficult uh, set of circumstances, not just this week, but even in weeks beyond that. And, and that is why I'm actually going to interrupt the, the normal flow of things, the conversation we've been having about Sabbath pause. Um, to, to pull you into another conversation uh, that I think is tremendously important for us to have. Um, and I want to extend my apologies to all of you who came thinking you were walking into a normal Sunday, because this is, well, not, you will soon find out this is not going to be a normal Sunday. And uh, if you've got any concerns, I'm going to be talking about a sensitive subject. I, I, don't, I think it's okay for kids to remain with us, but if you have any concerns about that, I want to let you know that. I also want to say that it is going to be definitely worth returning next week because the preaching will be better. 
And, and we're going to be able to conclude this incredible series we've been doing on, on the fourth commandment. So um, my main purpose today is, is to issue an apology to all of you who call Christchurch your, your home. Um, I, I really do, as you will come to see, I really owe you an apology. I want to say how deeply sorry I am to you for two, two major reasons. First, because I did something last Sunday that has sowed into the life of our church seeds of division in a, in a really painful way. It created hurt, anger, confusion for some of you. It created an uncertain hope for others of you. It created a, a, a potential harm to two families in particular as this thing has started to ripple its, its way out. Most of you may not even have a clue what I'm about to talk to you about, but let me tell you, it has been a significant struggle this last several days around here. And secondly, the way I went about what I did uh, disrespected um, the kind of care in discernment and communication with our leadership and with this congregation that normally characterizes the way we roll around here, what I want us to be about here. Um, and because confession is good for the soul and it is critical to restoring trust, uh, today I just want to tell you what happened, why I did it, where we go from here, and above all, I want to ask for your forgiveness. And I want to ask for your help in finding a good way forward and in reunifying our wonderful church in the midst of a very divisive issue. So that's the template for what we want to talk about today. So, what did I do? Last Sunday, uh, Right here at nine o'clock in this room, um, I baptized um, the infant son of a same-sex married couple that want to raise their child here at Christ Church. Um, I had an adult baptism also scheduled for that day, and I had the opportunity to meet the wonderful young woman who was being baptized. And I noticed that she was, wow, quite pregnant, with twins, it turned out, and I wanted to meet the rest of her family, and she introduced me to her wife. And I was blindsided by it and had to make a decision about what I was going to do. Um, the woman in, with the baby is a child of this church herself. She grew up here. She's been fed by the ministries of this church since she was a little one. Uh, she has had an amazing experience in the life of our church, and she wants this for her child. And um, the second mother, um, similarly, just wants to raise these twins uh, in the life of a, of a vital church. And in something of a fog for all of us in the equation, I imagine, probably for those who were sitting out in the chairs too, maybe you were at the nine o'clock service yourself and, and experienced this, but I just asked these women um, to make very sober promises. Uh, we went over it before, minutes before the service and then did it in the service. Sober promises to renounce sin, uh, 
to live deeply into the life of Christ and to inspire their children by their example to be followers of Jesus. To the day that, to the end that one day those children would want to confess Jesus and follow him as their Lord, uh, Savior and Lord. Uh, so I asked them to make this commitment. And, and the parents of the, of the baby were up here, standing right about here, and they were holding hands, which got read by some people in the room as an act of, of militants. That's not what it was. They were terrified. They were scared. They knew they were doing something in a, here that, that was different. And um, they were scared. And um, I put my hand in the water and I made the sign of the cross that you've seen me or Tracy make, others make here on, on those foreheads, a little baby, a mother. And I said the words that you've heard me say so often. And I welcomed one pregnant mom and uh, an infant boy into the life, family, discipleship pathway that is Christ Church. Now, it feels strange to me and, and, and became stranger still and then got clearer and clearer in my head that the act that has so often brought such blessing, has been the start of such incredibly good things in the lives of, of individuals and families, and which I pray will also be, in the life of those two families, uh, the beginning of a new kind of wonderful blessing for them. Uh, it's strange to me and hard and bizarre that the very same act that, 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 that I did was also so very damaging to so many people in this congregation that I have loved for such a long time. I had personal friends resign from the church, like within minutes of this. Um, and I should have known better to sort of drop this, just boom, like this, into this church. I should have known better. I, I, next to abortion, maybe, I think the, the issue of how we as followers of Jesus are meant to respond to the LGBT community is the most divisive issue in the life of the entire American church. I mean, it is splitting churches all over America. Entire denominations are being torn asunder by this. I have been up close and personal in my prior life before I came to Christ Church with that very thing. Um, I, I just... I just should have known better. And the reason why this is so incredibly divisive is because it represents a clash of powerful values, positive moral values, none of which, neither of which are wrong. And if you were here just a couple of weeks ago when I did a series on a Nation Under God Sunday in which I talked about the, the, the the big political struggles of our time. Somebody, raise your hand if you remember the, that series. You remember this chart? Um, I pictured this, these kind of six major moral foundations or values which research demonstrates you find the world over in every single culture and, and, and time. And, and these, these powerful values underlie so much of the social, political, cultural uh, conflicts uh, of our day and I painted on that message, I think it was July 1st, exactly how that was working. 
Uh, well, this, this, this is how this works around the, the issue of, of the same-sex relationship pool. Uh, because when it comes to how the church should respond to LGBT folks, some people, maybe you, s- tend to see this subject through the lens uh, or the glasses of the values of biblical authority and, and purity slash sanctity. That, that is sort of just the way. Those are the values. You care about all these values. But when it comes to that subject, those values are really big. And you fear they're going to be lost in the course of, of the church's handling of this relationship. So what happened last week at the 9 o'clock service seemed like such an obvious repudiation or denial or cluelessness about biblical truth when it comes to what the Bible says about sexual sin uh, that you couldn't believe what was unfolding in front of your eyes, or you can't believe what you're hearing me talk about right now. It seemed like a breakdown in the purity of the church, uh, our sense of, of individual purity or communal purity. Why would a pastor that you trusted for so long suddenly just thrust this new reality into the middle of your church, right in your face? It felt like a personal affront to some people. Yeah, you feel compassion for, 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 for same-sex couples, maybe, you, or you definitely feel it for kids, but, but you wonder, what are the optics for the children that are in the room that morning? What, what, is, what is the message this is being, is being conveyed, and what's going to be the impact on that? It's going to be confusing for them, and, and, and what does it do to the visitor who just showed up and sees the pastor doing this? Uh, this is a lot of what some people have been feeling, and maybe you're feeling this right now. Um, you know that there's a movement happening out there. You know, you know there's a, there've been some major tectonic plate shifts in our society in the way uh, this has been thought about. Um, but you think, you know, can I have like one refuge from that? Some some of us feel. Can I just can I just have one sanctuary where I, I don't have to deal with that? Please, please. And so you're tempted to leave the church. Or you already have left the church. And you're mad. Or you're sad, or you're both. Because you have loved this church. And I just wrecked it for you. It's not like that for... For everybody, there, there are also people, I heard from them this week too, um, who when it comes to assessing what happened last week, tend to look at it through the lens or lenses, the glasses of the values or virtues of, of care and fairness. Of care and fairness. This is, again, lots of these values matter to you, but the big ones for sort of interpreting this issue are the ones of care and fairness, and you believe the Bible says a lot in this vein. After all, you've noticed that Jesus continuously is reaching out to people who have been rejected by their society, and particularly by religious society. You know, that's like a pattern of Jesus in the Gospels. We see him doing that a lot. We see him touching lepers, people that others have said are, uh, they're unclean. You keep your distance from those people. And we see Jesus moving towards those people. 
you read the part where the scriptures tell us to welcome the stranger, where Jesus says, let the little children come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God, and forbid them not, forbid them not. You read all this stuff. You take that stuff really seriously. And that kind of teaching is actually the way you see uh, lots of life, and especially this particular issue. Maybe it's fed by the fact that you have experience with this. You've got same-sex attracted friends or coworkers or relatives. You've heard their story. You know these people. And that's also informed for you the experience. The first group of people I talked about before, they often have had experiences too. So don't think that that, that group of people is clueless about things relationally. They have their set of experiences too. But for the, the second set I'm describing, that, that experience has altered something for them in the way they think about it. And they feel that, that, that the church ought to extend grace to, 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 to gay and lesbian uh, people. In fact, you might even feel that you would feel better if you knew that you could invite somebody from that community to join you in worship and in the life of this church. Um, and so, uh, seeing or, or, or hearing of the baptism last week didn't, didn't bug you so much because you're actually concerned that the church not, the evangelical church not be perceived as haters. You don't want to lose a focus on the Bible. You're glad that there's a church like Christ Church that cares deeply about the Bible, but you will not, you don't want the church to be a hater. You are worried that if we're perceived that way, we will lose most of an entire generation beneath us who have already found a way to accept they're gay and lesbian friends, and for whom this is kind of a, a settled issue. Um, and so when I did what I did, or when you're hearing now about what I did, you think, okay, maybe that's even good. I don't know where you come down in this. Um, I don't know whether maybe you find yourself sort of straddling those two camps. You're not sure what to do. But this is what I mean by saying I understand what a divisive issue this is. Because these two different ways of looking at things, whoo, those are strong and impassioned and there are good, faithful Christian people uh, on both sides of this tension uh, just trying to hold on to things that really matter. And we've been a church that up to this point has managed to hold grace and truth uh, together in a pretty remarkable way here. Uh, up to this point, this has not been a conflict-ridden church, at least not for a couple of decades. I mean, it's been pretty incredible, the run we've had. We've been able to welcome all kinds of people into the life of our church, and it's never kind of come up to be a conflict issue. Maybe it was simmering beneath the surface, I don't know. But, but what I did last Sunday changed stuff. It changed things. It, it shook everything up. The balance that was there got, uh, got really messed with. And, and now people are raised, raised in their passions and they're forming their uh, opinions and they're uh, choosing sides and caucusing with other people who are on their side. And that is hard on a church that depends upon its unity to do its mission. And we've got a huge mission here, a very important mission to an awful lot of lives around the corner and all around the world. 
Um, so I am very deeply sorry to you for having disrupted the peace and the unity and what some will feel is even the purity of the church. And I really owe you an apology for that. Um, the, the second reason why I owe you an apology it, it is because of the way I came at what I did. Uh, and I need to ask your forgiveness for that too. Um, I introduced this change. I, I went and did that baptism without meaningfully consulting with almost anybody. Um, I did send an email, broadcast email out to all of our staff, to all of our elders and trustees the day before in the afternoon. It was an appallingly weak effort, really, to communicate. Um, and, and, and so please do not blame any of the other leaders of the church for where we are. This is my fault. It was a failure of, of my side of the wonderful partnership I have with all these other leaders. Quite a few of them have, have since responded, oh, it's okay, Dan, we know you have a good heart, we were trying to do the right thing, but <laughs> these people give their lives to this church. <laughs> and they so deserve better than, 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 the, than the process I, I used here. And you all deserve better than that. You really do. I know that in the clear light of day now. Because when we're making, um, even considering making big visible moves in response to major controversial issues, you, you want to know that the pastor of the church is making, deliberating, discerning, working on that stuff in the company of other prayerful, committed, mature Christian leaders, don't you? I mean, that, that, I think you should want that to happen. And, and, and you, you also want, wherever possible, to be personally brought in to the discernment picture, the leadership uh, projections, to have a chance to understand and buy into what we're thinking about doing before we just plunge ahead into some new zone of life. And I failed you on both counts. It, it was pretty clear to me by Monday morning that this was like the the most ill-considered act of leadership th that I can think of in my life for the whole journey of leadership in my life. So why did I do this? Why did I, why did I do this? Part of the reason why I did it was because I believed we had a policy uh, that made the thing I was going to do, again, I was just thinking this is the baby. I wasn't imagining there was going to be a second experience here too. I just thought there was a policy that, that actually allowed for this kind of thing. And so about a, a month and a half before, when the idea got floated to me, um, I said, yeah, I think this is consistent with that policy. I want to tell you what that policy is. I gave you a copy of that policy this morning. It's in the Pathways Bulletin as you came in. If, you didn't, if you're a non-paper person, you might want to grab one of these on your way out. But it's something called Policy on Marriage and Redemptive Community. This policy was unanimously approved by the Board of Elders of Christ Church in January of 2016. And the policy um, 
uh, grew out of the reflections that I did in the summer of 2015 in a sermon series called The Third Way. The, the Third Way. The Supreme Court, as you may recall, in the summer of 2015, came down with a decision on same-sex marriages. And uh, I could see, wow, this is gonna present all kinds of questions um, for our church. And so I went back to the scriptures and I searched for, for biblical perspective on issues of sexuality and of marriage and of, of uh, church life. And I laid it all out in a three-part series that I hope you'll read. If you haven't read it or watched it, uh, if you did it once before, go back again. I, I know you don't remember what the preacher said sometimes. I can't remember what I said yesterday half the time. Um, but we put it on our website right underneath the Press Pause series. So you can find it very, very easily. Um, in the 2016 policy, we established that Christ Church will continue to do only traditional marriages. Uh, and we, we, we believe very strongly in the, in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, and we articulated why in this policy that that's, that's what we're doing. We also uh, made it very clear that we will bring into leadership positions in the life of Christ Church uh, only folks who we sense have a life that is really submitted to the teaching of scripture on, on a whole variety of kinds of ethical things, that that was our decision. We felt that uh, it was very, very important that leaders uh, be in line with those um, ethical values. Um, and um, we called out sexual sins. Uh, we, uh, we named what the Bible names as sin, and uh, not just sexual sins, but lots of other sins uh, that we believe God calls us, is trying to call us out of asking us to turn away from, to repent of. So we did that. But we also articulated a vision for, for four critical practices, principles, that would allow us to be a redemptive community to anybody, to all of us who struggle with sin in our lives. And uh, that set of principles is on the back of this document and they're unpacked in the third wave series and it's between that, that biblical fidelity and that desire to hold um, a passion for redemption that we were navigating this third way. We were not gonna jettison the Bible and we were not gonna jettison people that, 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 that God came for, okay? This was our, our, our vision. Um, so, Ultimately, in the context of that, we wrote, it's the first point in our policy, that for these reasons, the church will welcome participation in its worship and other activities by persons without regard to their marital status or sexual orientation, and I viewed baptism as part of that worship and other activities uh, provision. And so when the request came up from the same-sex family, uh, Month and a half, two months ago, it came through one of my staff members and it was said, can, you know, is this something we can do? I thought of the policy, I thought, boy, this is a test case, but yeah, I think we can do that. And then this is really the amazing part. It went out of my mind. I did not think about it again until a couple days before last Sunday's service. I got going fast, uh, Sabbathlessness, 
in, is, in some ways. I got going fast. I did not consider all of the factors, the ramifications. I didn't even really ask myself a question, what would be most helpful to, to the people who are looking up at me as I'm reaching out with my water-covered hand to baptize them? It's just, I am in, at that point, just a different zone. And, and I am so sorry that I put those two families in the midst of this controversy. I'm so sorry that I complicated so much your church. Uh, I hope you will find it in your heart at some point to forgive me for this, for this failed act of leadership. And, um, and I appreciate more now how hard it must be for you to actually apply the biblical teachings that I try and and other staff try and share from this place each week uh, in the boiling place of everyday life. <laughs> because, man, I really obviously struggled to do it myself uh, in recent times. Um, the question, I guess, we have to ask is, so, so now what? Where do we go from here, given the reality that we've got here? So the first thing I believe that we have to do um, is to take a Selah. I think we have to press pause. So on Monday, I, I instituted a, mor a moratorium on doing any further baptisms of this kind to provide us with the space for us to really do the work we need to do to have a unified um, biblical approach to, to caring for people in the future. We are not rescinding what happened here. Uh, in fact, we're gonna step up our pastoral care uh, for those young women and those children. We've already had some very pointed conversations within our staff about our processes and the way we communicate with each other. Those need to improve. Secondly, uh, Elder Council Chairman Doug Hanscom and I have called a special meeting of our Board of Elders. It's gonna happen before the end of this month. And we're gonna sit down and we're gonna look afresh at this policy we have, and we're gonna ask ourselves, where does it need to be clarified? Where does it need to be changed? What, what is God saying to us in this particular moment? Uh, what do the scriptures say to us? Um, and then if you would like to offer input to the thinking of the elders, to the discernment process that we have, we would welcome it very much. You will find an email address there, elders at Christchurch.us. Uh, or if you like the old-fashioned way, just write us a letter, Attention Elder Council, and, and we will take this into our discernment process. We're not making this decision. Uh, we're starting a real discernment process. Uh, it may take a while. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we really would value that. Uh, because we want the standards that we emerge with to be an incredibly good blend of grace and truth uh, as good as any church could ever find because that's the character of Christ to hold that tension together. So, once we have that work done, we're gonna come back to you. We're gonna explain our thinking to you. We're gonna give you a chance to understand it, to, to buy into it, to share ideas, to improve it. We'll work harder than ever to try to explain our leadership thinking and policies to all of you before introducing major changes, not just in this area, if we're planning major changes, 
But in any other areas of our life, this was a fresh wake-up call that we need to be in good, open, transparent conversation with our church. And I need to lead that. I need to be an example of that. The final measure I'm taking is to ask you to please join me in prayer. Uh, please pray for the deliberations that our elders are going into, for the Holy Spirit to fall upon us and make a way clear to us as we go along. Please pray for our church that we may regain the unity and find the alignment around a way forward that we need in order to continue this incredible mission that God has given us. Maybe even ask God to help you be one of those unifying forces. Maybe ask him to show you how you can be a positive, creative force in the middle of this moment. And if I could dare to ask you for one more thing, I would say, please pray for me. Do not feel sorry for me. This was a completely self-inflicted wound. But do pray for me because I need wisdom. I, I really need wisdom because sometimes, I, I'm just be truthful, I really struggle to find the way on these complicated issues. Uh, I've sat with so much scripture over the course of my life. I hear so many voices and values arising out of God's word that I just struggle sometimes to figure it out. In fact, I will tell you that in my response to the, to the LGBT community, you know, one of the, the most um, affecting influences in my life is the 35 years of experience I've had as a pastor, not just talking one-on-one -on -one and hearing those persons' stories, but, but the experience I've had over this more than three decades of pastoral work with the stories and the lives of non-gay people. And let me tell you what kicks up for me sometimes in the midst of that. Should I baptize or welcome into membership a divorced or a remarried person. Because by the explicit words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Sermon on the Mount, many of those people are living in a continuing state of sin. Check it out for yourself. That's what he says. In light of the scriptural call to present our bodies as living sacrifices as our acceptable form of worship to God, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in light of that call, that our, our bodies are meant to be part of what we use to worship God. I don't mean just raising our hands in worship. Our whole bodily life is meant to be an act of worship. Given that reality, should I baptize someone who does not yet know how to or even want to give up smoking? or drinking too much, or overeating, when what they are doing to their body is literally destroying what the Bible calls the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do I bar those folks from baptism, from membership in the church? What do I do in those circumstances? or in view of the unambiguous command of Jesus that we are to love our enemies, we are to pray for those who persecute us, we are to, to do good to those who do wrong to us. And Jesus says it again and again and he models it on the cross, right? In view of that incredibly clear, obvious commandment, what do we do about the people in our church who have no problem angrily just dismissing people, throwing away whole 
segments and communities of people? What do we do about the Facebook life of some of our people? Do we push them out of the church? In light of the command of Jesus to leave the altar if there is any unresolved conflict in our life and go and be reconciled to that person, should I baptize or should I allow into the membership of the church or push out somebody who is actually gotten comfortable now with going through their life with quite a few broken relationships? What do I do as a pastor with those people? Or how about people who don't tithe and have no plans of ever tithing? I could go on. God's call is a tall order. Righteousness in the fullest sense is a tall order. It's a ladder, frankly, that none of us have the strength to climb, which is why he came down and tugs at our pant legs saying, I love you. Take this salvation. And thereafter we begin to repent. We begin to do different things in gratitude for what he's done. I do baptize these people that I do baptize because of two major reasons. Even though they're living in continuing, unrepenting states of sin, I baptize them for two reasons. First, because that one sin in their life is not the defining reality of their life. It's not the only thing about them. It isn't. That that guy who's a smoker, it just isn't the whole story. There's all kinds of other fruit of the Spirit in his life. There's wonderful attributes that I do not want to throw away too just because of that one thing in, in that person's life they've not been able to conquer or maybe don't even want to conquer yet. I imagine all that God wants to do through that person and I want to try and help with that. Secondly, I baptize them and I'm happy that they're in the church because I think the statistical probability that that, that person is going to find help in, in getting redeemed from whatever that besetting problem is goes way up if they belong to a circle like this, a circle of both truth and grace, I I think so. I'm really struck by this characteristic of the ministry of Jesus. I mean, he goes goes to people, he confounded his disciples, he goes to people that, that are really messed up. I mean, Zacchaeus is a really messed up thief. And the woman at the well is a serial adulteress and there's a long line of others that we could name that, 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 that even his disciples were going, oh, you, you really doing that, Jesus? And he goes to these people and he, he wraps the circle of the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit around that person. And then he says, come and learn of me. And they start following. And they start seeing things differently over time. They start believing new things. Uh, and, and, and they start seeing things they would never have seen if they had not been in the company of Jesus. And this belonging, this believing starts working like a flywheel in their life and it starts to alter their behaviors, maybe not immediately, maybe not entirely, maybe in some areas, never on this side of of glory, but it alters the life of that one person for good. 
And I think that pleases God. Even if there's some dimensions that are really slow in changing. And I think this is kind of what the Great Commission is, a, is about, isn't it? I mean, test me, I could be wrong about this, but look, look at what the Great Commission says. I want you to go out there and, and make disciples. How are you to do that? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Surround them in the circle of the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and then teach them. Help them believe what they need to get their minds straight around things. Teach them. And then they'll, they'll obey. More and more and obey. And I think, you know, this is, this is my story. My, my own story. This is how it's worked for me. If the church had not put its arms around me, uh, I had a lot of unrepentant sin going on in my life. I still do. I need help. I'm not, God's not done with me yet. Um, what's your story? How has God's truth and grace worked for you? So the question I want to ask in closing is, is this one. What would it look like for you and me to shape together a truly redemptive community? What would it look like for us to go all, all in together on trying to sh shape a, a church that is a vessel of the life-changing love of Jesus Christ that somehow manages to navigate its ways between the, the shoals of excessive license on one side and the shoals of a loveless legalism on the other side and people could feel the difference. They knew we were not those things. We were this thing. What would it look like to to shape that kind of a community. Because I think the world needs this kind of a community. And this policy that we kicked out in 2016, it was a good start. I think it was a good start at trying to, to, to do this. But I don't even know fully all of what is required for you and for me. I am still a lot like Thomas. I am still finding my way. And as you have seen by my failings through all of this, I do need prayer. I do need wisdom to be given to me. And that is why I'm so very thankful that there is a way. There is Jesus. He is the way. He is our pattern. He is the key, our guide to the truth and to the life that I think we're all seeking. So please, let's not harden our hearts to one another, but keep seeking to discern together what it means for each of us and for all of us to more fully follow him. Let's pray together. Lord, you have grown up in this place a, a beautiful, faithful church, a church that you are using to shape uh, for the good, the lives of, of thousands and thousands of people and tens of thousands more around the region and world. Um, Lord, we just don't want to see that wrecked. I don't want to see that wrecked. Please, God, do not let us be a house divided. You have prayed that your church would be one. So make us one. Show us how to find your way where you are going in your name we pray.
Amen.